Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeremiah. I'm usually helping out with slides, so this is a good stretch for me. Uh, we're going to be reading this morning out of Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 17. Feel free to follow along in your Bibles or close your eyes or whatever whatever's comfortable. <clears throat> so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, <clears throat> wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and, and are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. For when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, um, we have been, for the last three weeks, this is week four, in a little series celebrating Advent. And uh, Josh and I had the idea that it'd be fun to kind of explore the Christmas story in four places. Uh, and the order got jumbled up. Uh, because I had to be out for a Sunday. We were going to start with the Old Testament, Christmas in the Old Testament, um, and the story of this anticipation for God to send this one who's going to put things right. We ended up doing that the second week. First week, Josh looked at the, at least an aspect of the Christmas story in Luke, uh, focusing on kind of the longing that had been there. Um, and, and, and what do you do when you have to wait in your hope and when desperation sets in? Um, 
Last week, Josh looked at an aspect of the Christmas story in John, which was kind of, kind of a Christmas story. I mean, it's about the coming of Jesus, but there's no birth story. It's just this cosmic picture of this one who was, who was God and was with God and was this light of God and the word of God coming into the darkness. So it's this deeply kind of mystical and theological perspective, very true perspective, very needed perspective, but, but, uh, but that perspective nonetheless that John provides. And then we just skip Mark because we don't like Mark's Christmas story. I'm just kidding. Uh, Mark literally, if, if John is a stretch, Mark literally has no Christmas story. Uh, I don't know if you recall, when we started the Gospel according to Mark, uh, it just kind of starts with an announcement, Jesus is uh, the Son of God, and then you're off to John the Baptist. Jesus is an adult, Jesus gets baptized. So it's, Mark just couldn't care less about any of this Advent stuff. No, that's not true, of course. But didn't, didn't serve the purposes of the narrative he was writing about Jesus and, and what he wanted to bring out into the fore. So that's why there's no Mark in this series. That leaves us with Matthew today. Matthew today. And in some ways, Matthew is, uh, or maybe Luke just as much, but, but certainly Matthew on its own right, um, really does an amazing job of kind of picking up all those themes that we talked about from the Old Testament and, and showing Jesus as the fulfillment of them. Um, which raises the question, like if you were God, you're not God. Um, if you were God, what, <laughs> if you were God and you're trying to plan this grand reveal, like you're, you're coming into the world, like you're the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, you're going to arrange things, arrange the dates and the times and the way that the prophecies are going to be fulfilled so that like you make your entrance and nobody could possibly miss it, deny it, whatever. What would you do? Ever thought about that? What would you do? Have you ever even tried to make a grand entrance in general about anything? I, I asked that seriously. Has anyone ever tried to like make a, like a crazy entrance, for, maybe as a joke or, I don't know. I don't think we've, you made a grand entrance? What was it? Oh, I want to hear it even more now. <laughs> uh, we'll talk after service. I'm so intrigued. Yeah, usually we, we're, we're well-trained uh, to, to think, to, you know, have a humble posture. I'm not going to do anything grand. I did it once, and I pulled it off, all right? Uh, it was in college when I made most of my best decisions. Um, and I've shared this before. It's been enough time. I usually have, like, a running count of when I can reference Batman again so that this doesn't just become, like, a weird quirk. I, I, well, I guess it is still a weird quirk. Uh, I guess I should just give in and talk about it every week. I'm a huge Batman fan. Grew up on the comics, grew up on the cartoons. Whenever the, the Dark Knight movies came out, it was like the perfect commingling of like my childhood interest and like a serious filmmaker and Christopher Nolan. I was getting into film. I love, I adore those three movies, all three of them. Um, and that was right, I think, around the time the Dark Knight came out. It was like right as I was really getting into my stride with my yearly Batman costume updates, uh, which if you don't know about that, uh, my first year of college, I was Batman for Halloween. And then the next year, I was like, well, I'll just be Batman again. And the next year, I was like, I'll just be Batman again. And every year, I realized I could like, you know, you can't spend 500 bucks on a Halloween costume without being weird, I guess. <laughs> no shame to any of you if you're really into it. 
That's, that's unfair, that's unfair to say. I felt bad about spending that much money at once on a Batman costume. Uh, but if you piecemeal it together, 50 bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks here and there, glory awaits on the other side of that. So I was a few years into this and my, my suit was coming along pretty nicely. And uh, I remember like basically thinking like, I've got to try this out. My, my roommates were like, what do you mean? Like wear it? I was like, no, no, no. I've got to try it like Batmaning someone. And you're like, okay. So we had this scheme where uh, at our college house, we had this little roof you could climb up onto. So one evening, this was nowhere near Halloween. This was probably in the dead of summer, uh, mid-July. I got up on the roof and we had some friends coming over, like a few, a few girls that we were good friends with. They were going to come over. One of them may be my wife. May have been. This may have been what won her over. Um, but I was like, okay, here's the plan. We're, we're just going to invite him over, normal, normal Wednesday night, whatever. They're just going to come hang out, watch a movie or whatever. But I was perched up on, like, the roof, like, crouching, full Batman style, full, full costume, cape draped over me. It was so cool. <laughs> and uh, I was just, like, up there, and I thought it was so cool. And... You know, all I was going to do was use my Christian Bale-style Batman voice and yell like justice or something at them when they walked up onto our porch. And it all seemed like such a good idea in my head, and I thought I'd get a laugh or whatever. But it's terrifying if you're, you know, on a dark porch and someone barks justice at you dressed like a black demon from a roof. So I felt, I did it, I felt so horrible, but... Uh, they screamed, it was really sad. I actually, I vowed never to do that again to anyone. Um, but it worked. For a brief moment, I was Batman. <laughs> I was Batman. Uh, I have lots of pictures of the suit. I don't have pictures of that incident, sadly. But, there you go. Grand entrances, I don't know. We rarely try them, sometimes it goes well, sometimes you just feel really silly about it. Um, in this chapter of Matthew, in this chapter of Matthew, this has so many of those iconic things that we've all, we're all kind of desensitized to. You hear the Christmas story a million times. Yeah, we've got the, got the nativity set, we've got the manger, we've got a, maybe a barn, we've got some animals, maybe we've got the wise men that come over. We know the details of this story, and most, many of those details come from this narrative here in Matthew. Um, and so it's easy to kind of be desensitized to them, but, but in this, this opening chapter, we see what, at least part of how God, with, all, with thousands of years of buildup and anticipation about what kind of entrance he was going to make when he did the unthinkable and actually took on human flesh to save us, to become our brother, <laughs> to save us. So what did he do? What did he do? Well, we didn't read the whole opening. It's valuable. The whole opening chapter of, of Matthew has, has the genealogy of Jesus. Um, but, but we get at least three huge aspects of the glorious side of this Jesus and the grandness hinted at in his coming in these first chapters. First, we get this genealogy. And Jeremiah read the very tail end of it. It's all worth studying and looking at. But it starts with this phrase, son of David, son of Abraham. And if you recall from a few weeks ago, that should immediately, you know, your spider sense should start flaring up. Um, that's important. 
what, what, what Matthew is tying us into at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is that this one, this Jesus, this Jesus Christ, he even uses that title, Jesus Christ, Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king we're all waiting for, he, this Jesus, is the son of David, he's a descendant of David, and he's a descendant of Abraham, two things that must be true of him if he's going to actually fulfill all these prophecies. And so we see here already from the very first couple lines of Matthew that he is the fulfillment, this Jesus, of all these snowballing promises that began all the way back in the garden with the one who's going to crush the snake's head and kept collecting momentum and detail added on. Here he is. He's come. This is the son. He is the promised king to come and sit on David's unending eternal throne and to shepherd and to rule his people in all wisdom and power. Matthew tells us that. He, you're looking for him? Here he is. Here's the genealogy to prove it. There's a second part of his kind of glorious side, the glorious side of this Jesus that Matthew highlights, and that's the title, the name that the angel gives to Joseph that we just heard about. The angel tell, explains this kind of wild situation, and we'll look at it in a little bit more detail here in a second, to Joseph. Joseph's confused what's going on, but the angel explains, here's what's going on, and you're going to have this son, Mary's going to have him, and you need to name him Jesus. Jesus, which just, just means God saves. God saves. And then Matthew supplies a little, or the angel supplies a little bit of, uh, or no, I, I don't have the text in front of me. I can't remember if it's a quote attributed to the angel or not. Um, but he will save his people from their sins. His name is God saves. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to save. He's going to save. He's going to be the one through whom God saves. He will do the work of God in bringing salvation to his people. And not just a period like many hope for, of governmental stability. That's all nice to hope for. We all hope for a more stable government, more kind of kind conditions through which we can just kind of live our lives uninterrupted. Uh, and particularly for, for the Jews at this point, as we talked about, this had followed hundreds of years of them just kind of being passed around between different ancient empires that oppressed them and made them subservient. Um, now it's the Romans. So it's not just that, although that's certainly part of what they're hoping for and what we all hope for that is going to come at Jesus' second coming. But salvation from the chief problem that affects every human soul. It's what Luke was just getting at. Like, before you can solve, like, issues of world peace and why do nations war with one another and commit genocide and subject one another to these horrible atrocities, you have to deal with what's in here. Amongst everyone, for the world to actually be what it was meant to be. Is that right? That's what Jesus came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. His salvation is spiritual. But not just that. One more detail we get here in Matthew. That he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he quotes Isaiah 7.14, another one of these key prophecies. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. What this means, this is getting at that, that crazy, I mean, one of the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith that's wrapped up. Anytime you think about Christmas, the idea of the incarnation, that Jesus didn't begin to exist. Think about this. He didn't begin to exist when he was born, when he was laid in that manger. 
What the Bible claims is that he is the eternal son of God. As John said last week, the one who was God and who was with God from the very beginning. We're told elsewhere that he was the agent of creation, actually the one through whom God made all that exists through this son, the second person who was then born in human flesh. So this is the eternal one made baby, made baby. That's what he's claiming here, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, in a really good book that I read a few years ago by a, a pastor, he used to be at Imago Day. his name's Josh Butler, he had this book called Pursuing God. He's, he's like, it's as if the image he uses is as if a, an artist painted this beautiful picture and then finally painted himself right into the picture. If you were another character there, it's like you're like, I don't know, or imagine you're like, like in a, a character in a Shakespeare play. The only way you would ever know anything about who wrote this play, you know, this is getting really meta and weird, as if, as if Shakespeare wrote himself. Okay, now Shakespeare's a character and is explaining to the characters like, hey, I wrote you. Here's what's going on. That's the craziness of what's happening here. It's not just like someone, you know, from far off coming into the world. It's from someone who, it's someone who transcends the created world itself entering taking on its limitations, emptying himself into the form of a servant. All this crazy language that the Bible uses, that is what's going on here. So Matthew is asking us to, in the middle of this Christmas story, say, look at this baby. Helpless, sweet, probably crying, (laughs) like fragile, beautiful, maybe frustrating to parents, as most babies are. Mary and Joseph not sleeping. Oh, it's a real baby. It's a real baby. This baby is not just the next great king. There have been lots of babies. You're like, this is the king. Like, when this baby becomes an adult, this will be the king. This is awesome. It's not just that. It's not just a man delegated by God, even. This, somehow, this little infant is God. God. This is something almost unfathomable, even for those who were longing every day for the Messiah to come. I think this, like God himself became this, that's what the scriptures claim. So son of David, son of Abraham, the one with the genealogy that establishes him as the king, the one with the right to the throne, Jesus, or God saves, the one who will save the people from their sins, and Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew applies all of this to this little baby sitting here, born in these humble circumstances. So that's the glorious king, the promised one, the savior, and the God-man. But then juxtaposed with that is all this stuff. And this isn't a surprise. We talk about this every year. Most of our songs are about this, and that's why it's so good that we keep singing them every year because we need the remind we need the reminder that this is the case but jesus is not just the glorious king says all of the scripture and says matthew in particular but he's also the humble king the humble king and you're meant to be shocked with the contrast between what you would expect 
of the Messiah's grand entrance. If, if you just thought, okay, someone's coming, he's the promised one, he's the savior, he's God in human flesh, what is this gonna look like? What kind of coronation is there gonna be for his birth? Like how, this is the craziest thing and the greatest thing, literally, that has ever happened in human history. What do you expect? Is it the grand entrance? Well, of course, you know, of course it's not. Of course it's not. And we see four, at least four, these are the four that really stuck out to me that I want to highlight aspects of this humility of Jesus' coming. First of all, he's born into family scandal, right? So you've got this betrothed couple, which is basically like an engagement. Betrothal is like an engagement, but, but it's, it's, like seri- it's, it's far more serious than we treat engagement. An engagement, you're like, well, I just kind of want to call this thing off. And it's heartbreaking, it's hard, it's difficult, of course. But there's no like legal consequence for it. Like you're, you're not married till you're married. Betrothal in the ancient world was, was you are essentially, it's as if you're married, you just haven't consummated it yet. The only way to end a betrothal is, di- a betrothal is divorce. So they're committed. It's serious. Could only be ended by divorce. But before they were married, before they had consummated their marriage with sex, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Pause. Hear the story a million times. Oh, yes. And, and, it's, and hear me, it's right to think this is an incredible honor on Mary. Like She gets to be the mother of the Son of God. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing. But, but also, it is also fair to say, like, what terror, what complexity, what, like, disequilibrizing <laughs> kind of thing is going on here? What was she feeling? A lot has been written in speculation about what Mary was, was feeling. We know that she celebrated deeply. The Gospel according to Luke really focuses on Mary's experience through all this. It's an amazing story. Go read it this week. Go read it this week. But also, there is real human drama here. What would you do if you are Mary? What would you do if you were Joseph? Oh, you're pregnant. You're pregnant. There's only one way this could be, right? I mean, this, this is so intense for this couple here. There's real human drama here. And get it, hear this, there's basically always human drama when God moves because he so often moves in the world in and through and around his people. He works in us. He works through us. He works in relationship to us. So when he moves, it's disruptive, and it was to this family. So how did they respond? Again, in Luke's account, we get this window into what Mary was thinking and feeling. An angel reveals it to her that she, would be, that she would supernaturally conceive this son, the son of the most high God. And she celebrates. She breaks out in this song. It's amazing. But she was startled also. We see that. We see that she had questions. But her fundamental response was one of trust and joy and celebration. But I, I suppose we should pause there and say, like, like, what do we do with this virgin birth story or this virgin conception story, maybe more accurately? I mean, for, for many people, this is just one of those miracles that's like, just one of those things in the Bible. It's like, well, this just obviously doesn't happen. Clearly, we're now in fairy tale land of, like, made-up stuff. And all we can say is, uh, this is what the Scriptures claim. And if God exists... Uh, I see no reason why he couldn't do this. 
Uh, and if you say, well, God doesn't exist, well, that's the very thing we're debating. It's kind of circular, <laughs> circular logic on either side of this one. We just have to come to an amazing fact like this and say, okay, I'll bite God. I'll trust. You can do this. You have done this. And somehow, for some reason, doing this was the only way that I can be saved. <laughs> so, okay. Um, but it is amazing. We're not meant to shrug at it and go, oh, yeah, that's an easy miracle. But nonetheless, the claim is that this happened. The claim is that this happened. But in Matthew's gospel, we spend more time with Joseph in Joseph's perspective. Joseph heard the news from Mary that she was pregnant, and he just made the natural assumption. She'd slept with someone else. She'd cheated on him. And so he decided, in kindness, uh, to divorce her, but to do it quietly, to not make a big deal about it. That's, according to some of the traditions, he, he actually could have had her stoned. There's a window into their culture. Uh, but he chose not to do that. He chose not to do that. He, he decided to quietly divorce her so as not to shame her. But he was like, well, I clearly can't trust you anymore. But Matthew tells us, the angel spoke to Joseph and explained what was really happening that this baby was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph too, after Mary, he responds in faith. He recommits himself to Mary and he decides uh, to marry her and to father this baby, Jesus. So together, here's, here's where I'm getting at with all this. You know the story, but, but, but my point here is that together, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and then Jesus' future siblings, they were gonna have to bear the weight of their neighbor's assumptions that Jesus was in some way illegitimate. So it's gonna be clear to all. It was gonna be clear to all. So this family unit was forged in scandal. They had done nothing wrong. In fact, all they had done was respond in faith to this wild plan that God has. But nonetheless, their family was birthed in scandal. And the scandal we get hints at followed this family for the decades to come. Even in Gospel of Mark, a few weeks ago, we saw, we saw a little hint that they were kind of questioning, questioning Jesus' authority because they're like, oh yeah, isn't this the son of Mary? Yeah, we know about her. We know about her. In his plan, the grand entrance, God worked it this way. The Messiah would be born into family scandal. Let's keep going. Second, he's the son of Abraham, son of David, yes, but... but but he's from an imperfect pedigree, quite intentionally so. And Matthew highlights it for us. Um, we aren't shocked when we read the genealogy, and I know we didn't just read it together, but, but there, there are five women in this ge genealogy, and none of us would be shocked to hear that, cool, I wanna know who his, his mothers were, his grandmothers, great-grandmothers, so on. Uh, but in ancient culture, uh, this would be shocking. This would be shocking. You probably heard this before. In these kinds of patriarchal cultures, women were basically never included in these genealogical lists. You would never include a woman because the point of these lists is to establish kind of authority, establish, establish um, you know, credentials, and women don't give you any of that in this culture. Tragically, but that, that's the way that it was. So Matthew, note this, with the Holy Spirit's inspiration, so God working through Matthew, includes five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the name of the, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. And it's not just that they're women either, because um, there are more women than this, of course. <laughs> like every, every one of these fathers mentioned had someone uh, with whom they conceived their child. But, but, but Matthew highlights these five, 
And there's, there's some interesting things about them. One is that three of them were Gentiles and non-Jews. So immediately to the Jewish reader, you hear about Rahab, you're like, oh, that's that Canaanite prostitute <laughs> from that well-known story. Um, three of them were Gentiles uh, or non-Jews. Another, was, Bathsheba was married to um, a Gentile, and they all would have been considered unclean and cultural outsiders. And yet the Holy Spirit, working through Matthew, says, see them, see them in the lineage of the king. Three of them were involved in serious scandals or had extremely dark blots on their resume. Some of their stories will kind of make your stomach churn if you go back, and, and I encourage you to, when, especially if you're saying the Bible, you see genealogies like this, go. The author wants you to see the significance of each of these names. Go chase it down and say, what does this tell me about Jesus? We're not going to have time for it today. All this to say, three of them were involved in serious scandal, had dark blots on their resumes. This is powerful shorthand to tell us that Jesus came to identify with the sinner and the outsider. And that whatever your hierarchy of value is in terms of what makes people valuable, what, what people can add to your resume, what kinds of people are worth associating with or not, Right there in that genealogy, with the inclusion of these women in particular, Matthew is saying, and the Holy Spirit of God is saying, drop it. It doesn't apply in God's kingdom. It doesn't apply to the king. It doesn't apply to the king. Though many people would be ashamed to have some of these names associated with them, Jesus is not. In God's power, his sovereign working of history, he has already welcomed these women into his family, the family of the Messiah. You see that? That's what we're to take from this. They're already welcomed into his family. Don't miss it. Number three, he was born in the sticks. He was born out in the sticks. Bethlehem. To us, Bethlehem seems loaded with significance because you hear about Bethlehem every time you think about Christmas. Oh, yes, Bethlehem. That's probably in fulfillment of some great prophecy. And yes, it was. We see it fulfills a, a prophecy from, uh, from the book of Micah, or um, Malachi. But nonetheless, um, it's Nowheresville. The significant thing about Bethlehem was that David was from there. Well, that's important. But it was significant that David was born there because it was Nowheresville. That's why David was such a shocking pick for king. It's like, oh, he's not from a great place. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not from a place of notoriety. He's just this shepherd boy hanging out with sheep from Bethlehem. Why would he be the king? There would be another king like David, though, a better David, who was also going to be born in Bethlehem. But you know what? Just like David, he's going to be a humble, he's going to be born in humble circumstances. There's a little town barely worth mentioning except for the fact that this little David had been born there as well. The gospel according to Luke tells us there were no private rooms available and this is one of those things, you know, sometimes like all this cultural kind of stuff builds up around the Bible stories and you, you kind of assume that it's there in the text. Um, it, all we know is that there was no private room available. That when it says there was no room at the inn in many of our English translations, that word inn could mean like a, a, just a home, like a private residence. So there, they didn't have a guest room available. Could be an inn, like there wasn't 
one of many kind of commercial rooms available. Um, or it could mean something else. We don't really know exactly. The details are sparse. But we know that they had to lay Jesus in a manger or a feeding trough. There's no crib. There's no formal like bed, bedding for this baby. They just have to put him there. And so that leads us to assume, oh, maybe this was in a barn. That's possible. Maybe it was actually outside under open sky. That's possible as well. Or maybe it was in a really poor house where the animals actually lived with the people, as was, as was common sometimes. We don't know. So sometimes we've, you know, we've got all these pictures in our head that kind of fill in those details, and maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. It doesn't ultimately matter. The heart of what all those get at is the same. This is humility. The son, the king, God in human flesh, the one who's saving people from their sins, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he is laid in a feeding trough. That's where he's placed. That's where his family spends their first nights together as a family of three. And then finally, he was born under the threat of death. Um, we get just a hint at it. We see that, that Herod, the king, kind of this puppet king who's over Israel at the time in conjunction with the Roman Empire, he doesn't like that this Jesus has been born. And we see him being really sly. Oh, tell, tell me about where the king's going to be born. Where, where, where was that going to happen again? And then as, as the wise men come, he's asking them. And we, we read later on that he, he eventually enacts an edict just in the next verses uh, to have all these babies killed. Because he just wants to nip this thing in the bud. He has a plan to kill the Messiah before his throne could be challenged. So hear this. From the moment... <laughs> that word gets out about his birth, Jesus' life hangs under the shadow of death in the earliest days. Behold your king. If you're a Christian, that's your king. This is the glorious one. He's the, he is the promised one. He is the Savior. He is the God-man. But he is also the one who empties himself, who comes to serve, who identifies with the least of these. And that is a good thing, too, because that's the only reason I can be saved and you can be saved is because he's like that. He didn't come for the good ones. He didn't come for the righteous ones. He didn't come for the ones who can help themselves. He came the outcasts. He came for those who knew they could not be saved and he identified with them fully from the first moments of his life. And that's all we're going to say about the Christmas story at this point. There's two responses, though, we see in the story. Two responses that we need to learn from. First is Herod's. Herod's response is kill him. Because Herod knew what was at stake. If Jesus, if this Jesus is the king, Herod's not. Not the real king. If Jesus is the king, Herod's not. Therefore, if Herod still wants to be the king, there's only one thing to do. Kill him. Don't distance yourself from that reaction. We actually have to go through this. We have to answer this question for ourselves because it's not just Herod's throne that Jesus comes to challenge. It's yours. 
and it's mine. We all have to reckon with this. If Jesus is who Matthew is saying is, he is, if it's who Luke is saying he is, if it's who Mark and John and the New Te- rest of the New Testament writers and the Old Testament prophecies and everything else, if that's correct, your reign is over. And my reign is over. Our reigns are over. Anyone's are. And so the answer is, will we bend the knee to him? Like he just is the king, that's the news. It's been declared, now we all have to deal with it. We can bend our knee to him, say okay, I will serve, I submit, you are the king. Or we can grab our swords and say to hell with you. And we might not be tempted to do it quite so dramatically. I don't know any of us that even own swords. Jack, you might, you own a sword? (laughs) Do you have a sword? He didn't hear me. No? All right. It just seems like the kind of cool thing you would have. <laughs> so, does anybody own a sword? I know we've got weapons, though. I have a, I have a pretty epic pocket knife on my uh, nightstand. Um, we have to decide. Do you bend the knee or do you take up arms and say, your life, not mine? We make that decision every day, every moment. We, even if you're a believer, you've made the decision to follow Jesus, praise God if you had. We all still struggle with sin, and every time we do give in to sin, it's a little moment where we say, pull out that sword. In my way, Jesus, not yours. There's another response, though. We already saw it in Mary. We already saw it in Joseph. And then we see it in these mysterious guys from the east. The wise men is how it's translated in some some translations. Probably the better translation, some of your Bibles will have it, is the magi. They were these kind of enigmatic, almost fortune tellers. They're like astrologers uh, from perhaps Persia, somewhere east of Israel. So they're doing things that the Bible Bible does not commend spiritual insight from astrology and things like that. It, it, It just doesn't. But nonetheless... There was something about their, their work and what they were doing that God graciously revealed through that where to go find the Messiah. And they did. They left. They left everything. They trusted this revelation of God and they demonstrated it by making this long journey wherever it was they were from. And what did they know at that point? Not much. There's a crazy star. Perhaps they were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. He said... We're going to trust. We're going to trust. We're going to go. So that's what they did. And they got to him eventually. They come to Jesus and they worshiped. And I guarantee they were not as familiar with the story and the prophecies and all that, that should have made them eagerly longing to worship Jesus, like the Pharisees or the scribes, teachers of the law. Or to just the average Jew. Nonetheless, they knew enough to come and to fall on their knees and to offer gifts. You know, gold, frankincense, myrrh. That's, by the way, that's why we think maybe there were three, three magi there, three gifts. Could have been more, could have been less. I guess it was at least two. But they gave them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They fell to their knees. They worshipped him. And this is the call to us. This is 
the contrast here. Are we going to be Herod, grab the sword, or are we going to be like the Magi and give the gifts? Everything I have is yours, Jesus. You are the one to trust and to worship him. So that's our king. Matthew is working really hard for us to see, yes, he is greater, he is greater and more worthy of our worship than we could even imagine. And what has happened in this little manger is more complex than the greatest minds could ever figure out spending a lifetime. That is all true, but at the very same moment, he is humble. He is humble. He's the king who, in the words of Hebrews, he's not the high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And Hebrews 5.2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He's suffered. He's been sinned against. He's suffered violence suffered rumors gossiped about him. He's been rejected by his friends. He's been mocked by his family. He's been hungry. He's been in excruciating pain. He's had panic attacks. He came to be with us as one of us. Philipp- I love the way Philippians 2, I, I hinted at this earlier, but I, I read this and we finish. Paul puts it this way, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, listen to this, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' life started in humility and that humility carried with it all the way up to his formal enthronement as king where he was not given a glorious crown. He's given a crown of thorns. And they gave him a mocking robe that stuck to his blood after he was beaten. And they didn't put him on a throne but they put him on a Roman torture device, hoisted him up naked. Naked. Nails driven through his limbs on display with an ironic card above him that said, here's the king of the Jews. This same humility, he never set that down. It was what what marked him and what enabled him to actually save us. Even after he raised from the dead, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fingers in his side. And Jesus let him. You know why? He still has these wounds. Jesus' resurrection body is still marked by humility, even though, read on in Philippians, therefore God's exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is true, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he sits there with wounds. And he sits there as a man. He has wed himself to humanity from now to eternity future. He will never leave us. Amen? Amen. Oh, this, I hope this is true, friends. Today I believe it. Most days I do. Some days I struggle, but there, 
I want this to be true more than anything in the world. If this isn't true, there's no hope for us. If this is true, friends, glory awaits. Glory awaits. So God has come. This God doesn't look like what you'd think. Let that surprise you. Let that captivate you. Let it stir up you for worship. And maybe today, maybe you're just here to check out, I don't know, go to church for Christmas. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Maybe today you worship Jesus for the first time. And if so, come talk to me after. Love to pray with you and hear your story. But may we worship in response to this King. Amen? Amen. Let's do it. We've got, we've got more time to do it today. We'll invite the band to come back up and we'll, we'll wrap things up as we normally do. We mentioned we're going to take communion together. We have the little cups up here in the back, upstairs. Um, we do this because Jesus commanded us to. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread. He said, this is my, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. He took the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Do this in remembrance of me. So we do. So as you feel led, as we have a few songs here, um, when you feel led, you take those elements if you're a believer in Christ. You take them into yourself and remember what our king has done for us to save us. We give, we have the giving boxes, uh, well, just one right now, up there, and it's strategically there because it's an act of worship. We don't want it done out of compulsion, and I gave you guys, we had a financial update a few months ago, and we kind of said, hey, things are kind of precarious, we'll see how things go. I just want to be honest with you, in the last two months, things have kind of gone worse. <laughs> so I'm, like, I'm going to give a nice motivational speech to the community, and then it's just worse. Um, so we just say that to be honest. We'll, we'll have a more, a more uh, full financial update in the new year once the final year's quarter is updated, but we just tell you, and I, I want to say it now very clearly. Um, our church, and I hope no church that exists, is pay to play. If you never give a cent to our church, you're welcome here. <laughs> and you're entitled to all of like the same energy and participation as anyone else. If you cannot afford to give to our church, we want you here and we love you. That is okay. Hear that. Uh, but if you're someone who is able to give um, and you haven't, we invite you to. We invite you to. That's the only way that local churches function. And if you're watching online and you're not part of our church, we're so honored that you would spend this time here listening and watching. Uh, but if you are a part of a, lo a local church somewhere, you should give to them. <laughs> not, not us, but give to them uh, to support the work and ministry that they're doing. So I just say that candidly. You know, we're probably never going to be a church that belabors that point. But we just want to share with the family. That's, things got a little bit scary over this last quarter um, financially for us. And just be honest about it. And we'll do what we have to do into the next year. But thought you should know. We'll, we'll share more about that. But I say that at the same time, whether or not you can give or you can't, worship with us, be a part of this, know that you're a valued and loved member of this community. Sound good? All right, let's worship the king.